Welcome back to IB Voices. For this Asia-Pacific series in our first episode, Wellbeing and Transition to Online Learning, Part 2, we've brought together leading educators from this region's networks as they conduct a roundtable discussion on the impact of the current global health crisis and their strategies for successful response. I'm your host, Steve Wisher, IBWS Manager for Australasia. Joining me in Part 2, Dr. Jenny Chang-Wathel, Sharon Bailey, Manita Sen and Avi Nanda. Thanks, Matt. That was fantastic. Shaz? Um, well, we're newbies to all of this. I'm in the Victorian Government School and this is day eight of remote learning for us. And so we, as, as people have mentioned before, we are really benefiting from the advice of colleagues around the world who are way ahead of us. Um, lots of us were particularly active on social media and, and you know, people have been so incredibly generous in their sharing um, of their experience and their resources. And so we were um, prepared, but you're never as prepared as you think you need to be until you, you're in it and we're in it now. Um, I think the two, the two simple mantras that are guiding me personally and that I'm using with our staff and, and with other colleagues are less is more and also Maslow before Bloom. This is the time. All right, this, there, nothing else matters. This, this is all about well-being. We're in a pandemic. You know, this is, this, we, we never planned for it. Um, and hopefully we never have to live through this again. But this is, this is definitely the time for looking after ourselves, looking after our kids, our parents, and just recognising that people are grieving. People, people are anxious and that we know that no one will learn unless they are well unless you know their well-being is in place this is about social emotional learning it's certainly not the time for coverage of content so once we we reinforce that we believe that anyway but in this context more importantly than ever once that message got to teachers and that was from the beginning but i just keep reinforcing it you can visibly see them in these meetings just just relax so you know we've we've given teachers permission for flexibility certainly for innovation and for taking this time that we've been given by the universe to go to our rooms and think about what we've done to actually take this time to take those pedagogical risks, those things that we've always wanted to do, but feel like, no, we can't because we're too busy or we've got to get, you know, we've got to get through Victorian curriculum or whatever to actually innovate, be flexible and to respond authentically to the needs of your community. So that's, that's been a big one. And that I think is helping with the wellbeing of our teachers, but also certainly with, um, with parents and children and the feedback that we're getting as well. The fact that there is that flexibility there yeah. and the recognition that what, you know, the time that we're in at the moment is, is something that none of us was prepared for. Um, we're still not prepared for, 
Um, another thing that I think is important, you know, building on what Matt was saying as well, and I think Chris too, that, you know, in this, in this time of uncertainty and everything in our lives is, is uncertain, but from a pedagogical point of view, the one thing that we can hold on to in our school, and I think particularly with the support of the IB and, and the framework that that provides, is that no matter what, no one can take away from us our values and beliefs, and particularly our values and beliefs about teaching and learning. So we are really strong at our school that we will not compromise. We will not um, succumb to the pressure that we're getting from some parents to actually provide worksheets or workbooks or busy works. We, we will not succumb to that. We, we just maintain that this is what we believe, this is what we value. If you want to go down to the local newsagent and buy them some sort of busy workbook, that's, that's up to you, but we will not provide that because it's not what we believe is the best for them at the moment. A great message, Shaz. Thank you. And, and, and it's great to see that across programs, you, you're getting these links, these shared ideologies that are, that are guiding what we're doing. And Shaz, what a great place to start from. Um, you know, you've, you've had all this experience in front of you and you're, you're taking the best parts of it and applying it to, you know, a government school in Melbourne, which is fantastic. But Manita, what are some of the trends that you're seeing? And also what support is available? Um, from the, you know, that, uh, that you offer and that IB might offer um, or that you're aware of that may support schools? Um, in terms of trends, um, each and every school is unique because their situation um, is so different. But um, I think I connect quite a lot to what Jenny said in the beginning about the, it's almost like a cycle I can see schools going through. Um, the various stages, the first one being, oh my gosh, you know, survive continuity mm. how do we um, transfer this experience of schooling uh, and particularly in the, the primary years I'm seeing a lot of there's tension between schools parents you know um, justify schools having to justify fees um, and you know different pressures happening from different ways and I think school leaders are doing an excellent job of managing all this as well as as Shaz said the well-being um, of their teachers and their students and protecting the learning of their students, putting students first. I, mean, I think that's the, the universal trend that I can see with the schools that we're working with. It is about students first. Um, in terms of support um, in, in the PYP, particularly for schools who are going through, through the authorization process right now, we're looking at ways to, you know, for them to continue on with that. And we're looking at remote visits which ask the questions that I'm sure school leaders are also going to be asking soon about what is evidence of the pedagogy that we believe in? How do we evidence this in online learning environments? So I'm kind of thinking of things from that perspective. And in many cases, it is, as Jenny said, too early because schools that are just starting, you can't really see that yet because they're just setting up their systems and putting things in place. But um, yeah, I think that that communication that uh, across, through the learning community uh, and that sense of empathy that pa what parents are going through mm. um, suddenly having to become teachers you just have to look online to see how much they're appreciating the role of their teachers in the schools now but still struggling with managing their daily lives um, as well as suddenly becoming the the child's teacher as well so these are these are some of the things I'm seeing. Mm. 
Yeah, and I would just add to that bit for, from Monita is that I see that as schools are moving through that cycle that we've spoken about a few times now, I think now the questions are coming up with um, what does authentic assessment online look like? Um, and I think that's probably a question that TP schools are asking quite a bit at the moment. Um, there's a lot of conversations about um, feeding forward rather than feeding back and all of those kinds of strategies but i think it's early days as yet um it's it's interesting to see i mean this is um it's it's necessity being the mother of invention everyone is just in a stage of a little bit of flight and fight and trying to figure out the best way to go ahead with a number of things that we need to be able to do for our students um as far as support is concerned the ib has put up a, a document um i'm just trying to find the name now yeah it's called online learning teaching and education continuity planning for schools which is on the PRC so that's available to all schools who might want to have a look at it it just provides a list of strategies as well as some sites that could be helpful um, people on the uh, on the chat have already spoken about um, you know having the webcasts and so on so help to schools that may not have that technology to be able to set up for themselves so that kind of information is available and, and again as Monita and Chaz and everyone has said I think it's a networks that are just standing by each other in order to be able to Able, to be able to help and support. There have been some schools that have come on straight away with the resources that they're using and they've been so open with sharing that across the um, across the networks that it's been really fabulous. And, and in the end, I think what really energizes me right now is just, you know, the mark of the teacher. What is it that they do? They just share and they, and they care for their students. So it's, it's just amazing. Thanks, Avi. I wonder um, what the role of play is in an e-learning e environment for, uh, you know, th that we're engaged with. I, my wife's a, a prep teacher um, and trying to um, engage with, um, with five-year-olds at the moment in an online learning environment. It, uh, you know, play is such an important aspect in a normal um, school situation. What, what's the role within an e-learning environment? What's the role in life? Basically, um, I, you know, I think it's it's within any context, and I also think that we need to make sure that that we extend this beyond our paradigm of play in the early years. I think more than ever, this is the opportunity to play um, for everyone, and and that shouldn't just be confined to younger kids as well. Um, play at the moment, I think is probably one of the, the greatest things that we can do in order to alleviate anxiety and fear and also to unleash the creativity that you know, we now have some time to, to pursue. So um, what's the role? I, I mean, my answer is what's the role of play in life? We all should be playing. Yeah. yeah. Manita, would you like to yeah, as always, Shaz, you're in you're in my head, um, and I fully support your uh, your idea and your thoughts. Adults also need to play. We need we need it more we than do. ever right now. Um, I was talking yesterday to a teacher who works with three year olds, um, and she had just finished a session with puppets and you know singing songs. Um, and we were talking about really in the early years the importance of of supporting parents with ideas. Um, because depending on their situation, you know, how are they engaging children? Because I think early, early years, expecting early years children to be sitting at a screen and engaging and talking with you is, is a very unrealistic expectation and not something 
that we want them to be doing. So yes, this is a time for them to be doing what they do very naturally. That is play. <laughs> I, think, I think what's important at the moment is that we need to help our parents value play as learning. Now that's always been the case, but I think now again, more than ever, for them to see that play isn't just having fun, um, that there are, you know, there is significant learning there. And, and one way that I think that we could do this is to actually give all our parents um, an outline of our approaches to learning and take them through just a, you know, a very simple exercise of observing their child at play or their children at play and give them a checklist of all of those skills under those, under those five areas and, and just to get them to notice, which is what we want teachers to do as well. Just sit back and notice with that, with that checklist in front of them. And I think they will be blown away by the number of skills that those kids are displaying and also developing in the context of play. So I think this is a great opportunity for us to do that. And that's quite an effective way for parents to actually start to realise that play is very much about learning and discovering and exploring and hypothesising and making sense of the world. Mm. Uh, fantastic, yeah. I think there are also simple things at home that parents don't realize they can be doing with their children that also involve aspects of transdisciplinary learning, you know, whether it's cooking together, building a den, making a cat castle, <laughs> all of these things involve um, learning from different subject areas and yeah, are fun. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And the transdisciplinary aspect yeah. of, of particularly the PYP um, program, this is such a great opportunity for it to, to, to live really, and draw upon um, all of those various subject areas and so forth, rather than sitting down for a maths lesson or sitting down for a language lesson. And, uh, you know, there's, I'm getting emails about, you know, I'm delivering spelling lessons and grammar lessons and so forth live uh, online. The, you know, the transdisciplinary aspect of the program should be opening doors to creativity here. E-learning has evolved. Like, given that we've heard everybody's input here, how how do you see um, e-learning has having evolved over the the COVID nineteen period? Um, and do you think any of the lessons learnt will contribute to learning in the future? I think that this is probably an opportunity for us, even though we're going through very challenging and disastrous times globally. Um, I see this as an opportunity for us to really rethink, you know, what education looks like for our students, what pedagogy looks like, and, and to try and transform this. Um, in terms of the evolution of e-learning, this is so unprecedented that research does not actually cover a situation where teachers are teaching at home and students are you know in their individual homes there is this is unprecedented and research talks about blended learning environments as students go into a brick and mortar situation for one or two or three days a week and then they stay at home and learn asynchronously for mm. the rest of the time so this is a definition now you know we've redefined exactly what blended learning uh, looks like now it's it's not going into any 
any kind of physical face-to-face -face traditional environment. So what is blended learning for us? You know, it's, it's a combination of this face-to-face -face synchronous live connection that I heard so many um, of us talk about in this group, that those check-ins that we need to have to make sure that we bring that human element. I love, Shaz, your comment about, you know, Maslow before Bloom, because the reason why we all became educators and teachers is because we bring that human element and we promote and encourage that rapport that cannot be replaced by a textbook, a worksheet, a video, or even an AI robot. And so how are we going to try to still promote that human connection and bring that element, that human element as educators? And that is through those check-ins. It is through those face-to-face -face live synchronous sessions, which may not be focusing on curriculum and, and checking off standards and content coverage. That's not what that, that connection part of blended learning is about. It's about really trying to showcase the human element that we bring as teachers and as students. And so that means that that balance of synchronous live and asynchronous learning has to be really carefully considered in terms of context. And I know that there is no black and white hard fast rule, oh, it's 30% this or 70% this or 50% this and 50% that. But I do steer clear, I do try to encourage um, and steer clear from the proportion of your uh, learning for your students shouldn't be, the major proportion shouldn't be the face-to-face -face synchronous live. So we shouldn't be requiring students to be online with you synchronously, you know, for 80% of the time, as an example, because we have to consider accessibility issues. We have to consider that many families, I was talking to educators in the North America region, where they have one device for six children, or they don't even have Wi-Fi. And so we really have to be inclusive in mm. how we put together the program, you know, for our students. And that may not mean that you're going to have the majority of your lesson in an online synchronous fashion. You know, if we want to be inclusive and we want to ensure that every student has equal access to learning opportunities as well as some kind of connection. So if there is no, if there is no Wi-Fi, I suggest even a phone call from teachers, some kind of check-in, you know, something the way you're checking in on your students' well-being if that face-to-face -face, um, opportunity is not there. So we have to really think about context as well and take context into consideration. What does a good e-learning platform look like? And I know having seen a number of them, there's such a diverse range of platforms that, uh, that schools are using and so forth. Some, uh, you know, even as a, as a teacher or an educator, they're quite confusing. Others are, are quite yes. simple. What, what, in your opinion, does a really good one look like? I think um, rather than focusing on a particular tool or an LMS, it really has to give rise to affordances that the e-learning environment gives us. So can it support differentiated learning? Can it um, support collaborative intelligence? Can it give recursive feedback? You know, can it um, integrate and embed lots of other tools within that system? My belief is a one-stop shop. 
we don't want parents and students and teachers going to 20 different you know uh, websites or different tools but can this platform really try and encourage all of those affordances that arise from the e-learning environment um, as well as uh, focus on deep conceptual understanding and critical thinking promote that collaboration but can it be a one-stop shop where we can embed all of the other tools so that uh, our students and our teachers and our whole school community don't have to be learning and overwhelmed with um, every single, you know, all the digital tools mm. that are available. So that's probably my, yeah, probably my advice, a one-stop shop that can facilitate all of those affordances that actually give rise to the e-learning environment. Good pedagogical practices at the end of the day. Thanks, yeah. Jenny. That's, yeah, that's once again, great advice. Thanks for listening, and I'd like to thank our panel for joining us on this episode, Wellbeing and Transition to Online Learning. Visit our website where you can subscribe to IB Voices so you will never miss an episode. Stay tuned to the next episode, Communication in Crisis and the Value of the Network.